welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. And now your host, Sonia Esther Sultani. Welcome to this new episode of the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Esther Sultani, and today we're going to talk for the first time about objets d'art. You have to listen to find out what they are, but I can already tell you they've been made by Calvin French jurors in New York from the imagination of André Chervin, one of the co-founders of the firm. And today we have his daughter, Carol, to explain his creative process, his sources of inspiration, his work with his artisans in their workshop over years, and the artistry that went into every single piece and these pieces are currently on display in New York at the Historical Society. So don't miss it and listen to Carol telling us about her father's work. Hi, Carol. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today to discuss an exhibition of your father's work, Enchanting Imagination, that's being held until the 17th of March, if I'm correct. You are correct, but I have some late-breaking news which is the museum has asked to extend the exhibition. So it will go later than March 17th. That is an absolutely wonderful news. And I think after this podcast, there will be even more people who really want to see the beautiful creations of your father. So most people will know who's Calvin French, but I would like you to tell us a bit more about how did Calvin French start it? Calvin French was founded by my father, André Chervin, and his partner, Serge Carponcy. Both of them French-born, French-trained jewelers who had come to the United States, my father, when he was in his early 20s. And my father was born in Paris, trained to be a jeweler in Paris, and then did not quite decide to leave, but he decided that it was time for him to see a little bit of the world. And for him, the world meant the United States. So he came to the United States with his skills and immediately was able to find work as a bench jeweler. In fact, was a classified ad in the newspaper then, now it's a magazine, France Amérique. And they were looking for a French jeweler with the bench skills that he had. So my father started in bench work and a couple years later was working side by side with his soon-to-be business partner, Serge Carponcy. And they decided, although they had very little money, to start with capital for the business, they decided to try and venture out on their own with their own firm. And that was in 1954 with the name Carvin, which is a combination of the first three letters of Serge Carponcy's last name and the last three letters of André Chervin's last name, Carvin. French put in there because at the time it was de rigueur to have a French jeweler. As my father likes to joke, people wanted their jewelers to be French, just like their coiffure and their waiters. And they put French in the name, of course. And it was founded in New York City at 16 East 52nd Street, stayed there for many years, and is still in New York City in Midtown. And what a lot of people know is that the Maison has been creating jewelry for Verdura, Tiffany, Bulgari. So we'll go back to the jewelry a bit more. But first, this objet d'art, what does that mean, objet d'art? Obviously, you gave us the background, the French background of your father and his partner, But what is an objet d'art? I think that's what we would like to talk about today. We're going to mention the jury, but this exhibition is really about this objet d'art. Yes, this exhibition at the Museum of the New York Historical Society brings out to the public these objets d'art that were made at Carvin French 
with my father overseeing them by the very same jewelers, lapidaries, polishers, setters, artisans that were making the jewelry. But the objet d'art, which I don't know if everybody knows what that means, but an objet d'art is, and I'm looking at a dictionary definition, is an object of artistic worth or curiosity, especially a small object. And we use the French phrase objet d'art even in English because English just simply doesn't have an equivalent that really captures the artistic nature of an objet d'art. So these objets d'art were my father's passion, really. He loved making jewelry, of course. He found that he could take his experience, his talents, and the experience and talents of the people working in the workshop and push them just a little bit further and explore a little bit more difficult even areas by going into the unknown. That meant making little boudoir lamps or little table clocks, even uh, salt and pepper shakers, cigarette holders, and beautiful flower bouquets or bonsai trees. There's animals, anything that you can think of anything that my father thought of, he could bring to life through the objet d'art without any client to answer to, because these objets d'art were straight from his imagination and the imagination of the people working with him as well. And he thought he'll sell them later, but for now, they were strictly out of his passion, his artistic leanings and his artistic desires. And for people who are familiar with the unique style of your father of Galvin French, how do they kind of dialogue, the jewelry and this objet d'art. There's a specific touch in the jewelry that you also see in the objet d'art. Can you tell us a little bit about the parallels? So at least you can see there's a continuity and it's part of the same artistic vision. Well, many people have different opinions on that. It's always in the eye of the beholder, but I see there's more things alike about them than there are different. So they use some of the same materials. They're precious gems in some of them. They're also semi-precious and there are minerals. For instance, lapis lazuli figures in a lot of the objets d'art, one of my father's favorite stones. He also used it in the jewelry. You take a lapidary can carve a ring out of lapis lazuli by putting all sorts of beautiful designs or ridges on it. That same lapidary can do it in a larger size in a clock. And there are two clocks that feature lapis lazuli. There's also jade. Carbon French made many things with precious jade, particularly for the Asian market. And then there are jade pieces in the objet d'art, such as these two lamps that feature moss and snow jade abajour or lamp shades. And that's not going to be the exact same green apple color imperial jade that you might make a small ring out of, but it is just as beautiful in my father's I to have the white with the green shading through it. And they took advantage of the formations of the green in the white and highlighted them with the lapidary carving floral carvings, a bird, a hummingbird in one of them, a dragonfly in another. And a parallel between the jewelry work and the objet d'art work is the interplay between my father, who keeps the artistic vision going and technical as well, since he has both by working with the 
artisans, but the artisans give back as well, of course. And it's a feedback loop in creativity along the way. So for instance, the I talked about the freedom that my father had in making the Objet d'art. Well, that included the freedom to change his mind and to maybe in the process of making something, change the direction of the design and not stick to an original design. With jewelry commissions, you have an original design that you agree upon with the customer and you stick to it pretty much. If something occurs that you as a jeweler, you feel is not going to suit the piece well, and you want to deviate from the design, well, that's going to require a discussion and permission with the client who ordered it. But with these objets d'art, my father was at complete liberty to change whatever direction and often they did. So one example of that is with the jade, the moss and snow jade. Abajur, the lapidary was carving one of the shades when he discovered that if he had stuck to the plan, he would have cut off a particularly vibrant chunk of green, vibrant green apple color in the jade. And it would have been just cut off and lost. So he called my father into the workshop and said, I want to show you this and let's figure out what you want to do. And he showed him that that piece, my father said, absolutely not. We don't want to sacrifice that color. So we're going to change the shape of this shade to incorporate that beautiful vein of green apple color. And in fact, even make it a highlight of the piece. So if you look at this particular lamp that I'm talking about, you'll see a butterfly sticking up from the side of the shade. That butterfly is in this beautiful green apple color jade. And that is the result of that interplay and back and forth discussion between the lapidary and my father. That's a great example of this collaboration. And there's a beautiful picture in the exhibition and I think also in the book that I'll show later, but I think it's a New Year's card from the workshop and this is an illustration and you see all the craftspeople and you see your father as a conductor. And I think that's such a nice uh, representation of you need all the different instruments in the orchestra to make it work and your father just directing and getting the best out of this amazingly talented craftspeople. That's exactly right. Getting the best out of people, supporting them, giving them the confidence that they actually can do something and then challenging them to go even further was something that my father was excellent at doing. I think also something very interesting is that these pieces were not created just like a piece of jewelry, a commission, you have a certain deadline. Um, they were created over years, some of them five years, 10 years, even longer, because they were made in between commissions for the big houses. So tell us, I mean, this is just your father always had these little chats with some of He always had these objects in mind, even if they were out of sight. So they could have been in the back of a safe. But if there was a particular setter, jeweler, or lapidary polisher who had two hours free in between work on commissioned projects, he would pull out one of the objets d'art that was in the works. Maybe he hadn't pulled it out in a year or more and say, okay, let's continue carving this floral design or putting together the lamps, for instance. They had to create the electrical channels for the electricity to go through some 
very difficult minerals. For instance, in one of the lamps, the wire has to go through invisibly, I'll say, because he, my father liked mystery, but it had to go through rock crystal quartz and then through a fluorite and then up into the, the armature of the top of the lamp. And as my father says, fluorite, as soon as it sees a drill coming, it cracks. So this is a very delicate operation. So he might only trust one person in the shop to do that. And if that person isn't free for two years, then it won't get work done. Or if that person goes off and moves to another country, it sort of stops work until my father finds someone else who he feels can do it. Or in the case of one of the objects, until that person moved away and 13 years later came back and <laughs> resumed something. So these objects, they, they, they don't have finite dates on them or uh, definite dates on them because they were worked on for so long. And even after something was so-called finished, my father's brain would keep imagining what else he wanted to do to improve it. And he might pull out something that was otherwise thought to be finished and work on it some more. By the way, the objets d'art are more than 360 degrees, 360 degrees in three dimensions. So the bottoms of pieces that sit on a table are just as beautiful as the tops. And if we look at a couple of pieces together, I'll point that out as we go. I love it. And, and also, when I was going through the book from the catalog, it feels like a biography of your father, his taste, his sense of humor, some objects, you know, like the strawberries, memories of French childhood and fraise des bois. There's a lot of witticism in the pieces. Can you spot a few of these objects for our listeners and then to encourage them, I'm sure, to go and see the full exhibition? Yeah, definitely the sense of humor figures into the objet d'art. That is another parallel with the jewelry. There, If my father had his way, which you don't always have when you're just taking orders, but uh, he would often suggest putting in some whimsy or some humor into even expensive, fine jewelry. He doesn't like taking things too very, very seriously, and especially in the objet d'art. I love this not taking himself seriously and also being funny. And what the catalogue says, that he made a lot of pieces to entertain you and your brother as well as children. And there's one piece I really like, you know, the two thieves in the bath. Can you tell us about this one? Because it's just wonderful. Sure. His sense of humor is often, his objets are often um, accompanied by a story that he had in his head while making the pieces or before he designed the pieces. And I say designed loosely because my father would sketch and doodle. He's very talented at that. But usually a piece did not have a full-blown design before they set out to work on it. They would maybe have a sketch. Maybe he would have the in-house designer at Carbon French design it, but not in the sense of a formal watercolor or something that you might have for a client that wants a formal design. And he made these pieces of the two thieves with this story in mind. He says there were these two very hapless, pretty unsuccessful bank robbers. And this is an old time, wild, wild west. And they one day were in a town and they held up a bank or two, but they were completely unsuccessful and were laughed at. And all that happened to them was at the end of the day, they were tired, hungry, and dirty. And they went to the local inn and asked for a room. And the innkeeper said, 
absolutely not. Not until you clean up a bit. I'm not letting you in one of my rooms looking like that. And so he picked them up and plunked them into a bathtub, clothes on, hats still on. And the objet d'art is this bathtub with the two scoundrels sitting in there with their clothes on and their hats on. The hats are made, each one, out of a single piece carved out of rock crystal quartz. One is lemon quartz. And their heads, they are gold, but they have white agate mustache or a black agate or an onyx mustache. Their hands out of the tub looking like they're not happy at all to be thrown in the tub. And you see the water which is oxidized silver, but it's oxidized in a very shiny way. So it looks like black water, which is black because of how dirty these scoundrels were. The tub itself, my father wanted it to be enameled, as all tubs are, but they had to do it several times over because the first time they did it white and it looked much too gleaming and new and clean. My father imagined this as an old tub, as you can see by the design of the feet and the faucets. And so they did it over again until they got a more dingy ivory color for the enamel of the tub. And besides, I mean, the humor is in it already, but it gets even better when you realize that each one of these scoundrels can be twisted a little bit and pulled out of the tub and you take off their hats and flip open their heads and they are a salt and pepper shaker fully functional i mean you turn it upside down and you see where you can put in the salt and where you can put in the pepper so my father just loved the idea of bringing that artistry to the household and to the table and make people laugh he did other salt and pepper shakers too which were sold for clients that were more serious because the client didn't want as much humor as my father did when he did it for himself, but there's another set. Uh, there are two other sets that are mushrooms in beautiful Chinese turquoise or chrysoprase or coral, white opal for the tops of the mushrooms, and then enameled gold tufts of grass around the mushrooms. And the mushrooms sit in a caddy, an individual caddy with a little handle, and on the handle of each one, they have puti, little puti climbing up the handles just to make it more humorous. Oh, the details are absolutely extraordinary. And I wanted also to point out to remind people this object d'art are completely functional. It's like every single one of them. When it's a lamp, it's really a working lamp. When it's a clock, it's a working clock. So it looks absolutely stunning, but it works as well, which is absolutely fantastic. And there's one of the lamps with the frogs and it's like this rubies and you think how long did it take to even be able to polish it exactly the right angle exactly to make this completely seamless creation and that is a lamp i mean it's just mind-blowing the lamps also are playful not only that they have for instance frogs climbing on them but that my father wanted to have a secret way of turning the lamp on and off For each one. So it's not just a regular switch on the cord or there's no little pull like a regular lamp. He hid the functionality of the switches. So for instance, on that lamp that you're talking about, the frog's rubies or the ruby des grenouilles, the way that you switch it on is you tickle a switch underneath one of the frog's chins. And that turns the lamp on and off. And when it goes on, it does set those 
slices of rubies on the shade really on fire because the tiny little bulbs inside the lamp just illuminate through the translucency of the rubies. And you ask, how was it done? I mean, it was done over many, many, many years. The lapidary had to slice and polish the rubies in a matrix fit them just right, but not only in two planes, an X and a Y, but in three, they had to worry about the depth, the thickness of each of the rubies as well, because this rough ruby, of course, the different parts of it have different saturation of color, different impurities. And so they're going to have different levels of translucency. So when you have a piece that is not very translucent, you need to cut it thinner, thinner, thinner to get it to not be completely opaque. Then when you have a piece that is less saturated, maybe has less impurities, then you can leave it thicker. If you cut it thinner, you might lose the beautiful red color. So this is, you know, science, engineering, math, and artistry, and a lot of hard work and a lot of mistakes that along the way that just get left aside in the learning process. Really, it's fascinating. You can spend hours just looking at every single detail because they're quite small pieces as well to the intricacy of it. It's like, you know, when you look at a beautiful piece of jewelry, but it's really phenomenal. And I wanted to go back to jewelry because some of them, one of them is an object and a brooch as well. This ostrich is just beautiful. So tell us how you move from the object to the jewelry in this one. Yeah, I think um, the lady ostrich, who is definitely a lady, actually seems to be a favorite of the curators and the staff at the New York Historical Society. They've sort of adopted her as a sort of mascot of the museum. And she she is, let's say, small for an object, but large for a piece of jewelry. So she's about this tall, maybe about 10 centimeters. She has a beautiful pink pearl tail feathers. And in between the pink pearl tail feathers, she's set with fancy yellow diamonds. And she is also wearing a black diamond set bow around her neck, which just indicates she is ready to go out on the town. And she's a very sweet and happy face as well. But she's sitting on um, a mineral that's sort of rough cut, but polished in some, in some ways, a black stone. And you can remove her from that foundation and wear her as a brooch. So it's a way, you know, I think that a lot of people are frustrated that when their jewelry is not being worn, it's just in, in the dark drawer but this one allows you to enjoy this piece of jewelry all the time if you can display her outside. It's just a beauty. I can see how she became the mascot. <laughs> and for people who will see the exhibition, will they also see jewelry there? Yes. The museum and I worked closely in the creation of this exhibition with the curator, Deborah Schmidt-Bach. We felt from the start that there should be jewelry in the exhibition as well in order to situate and give context to Carvin French jewelers because primarily Carvin French jewelers is about the jewelry. And they chose, uh, it was difficult to choose what to put in the exhibition, but there was different reasons for the different pieces. Some of them showing the ties between the objet d'art and the jewelry. For instance, there's uh, a Muguet des Bois brooch by Verdora 
made by Carvin French. There's a f- enamel frog brooch by Verdura made by Carvin French that have relationships to pieces in the exhibition. There's also a Donald Claflin designed Tiffany bracelet that has an abundance of leaves and foliage as well as strawberries made out of coral in it. And that is mirrored in the objet d'art of a strawberry bush. As you said, my father was reminiscing and in fact, always still to this day reminisces about the wonderful taste of the strawberries in the Fraise des Bois in his childhood in France. And these strawberries are made out of coral and punctuated with little gold dots for the seeds, both in the Tiffany piece and in the objet d'art. My father is a great admirer of nature, and that's apparent in the jewelry as well as the objet d'art. Both plants and trees and flowers, animals, and also fruit. And so he studies nature. He's fascinated by it. For instance, it wouldn't be unusual at all to sit down for lunch with him and to find him counting the seeds on a strawberry to see if they all have the same number or if they're all arranged the same way. And then he transports that knowledge into the work, into the art The other jewelry in the exhibition is Bulgari pieces that were made at Carvin French. And there are are a couple of pieces that were made for individual clients that came to Carvin French over the years that show us a parallel in the beautiful lapidary work and the three-dimensionality that is brought not only to the objet, but also to the jewelry. Whenever Carvin French, I think one of the hallmarks of Carvin French pieces is that three-dimensionality, that organic shape, the movement, whether it's en tremblant or not, a sense of movement in the organic pieces that it doesn't just look dead and heavy, but looks like it's alive. So I think that shows in some of the jewelry that's, that's shown in the exhibition as well. So thank you so much, Carol, for this wonderful overview of uh, your father's work, this exhibition that is being held a bit longer than we thought. So people who are in New York, who are coming to New York in the coming months, really invite them to come and admire each piece and to learn about Calvin French, especially this part of your father's work. People who are not able to attend the show, there's a catalogue, which, you know, we'll show. I'll show it for our YouTube listeners, but we'll show it to our other people as well. And how could people learn more about your father's work if they don't have the opportunity to attend the exhibition? Well, I do commend the museum for the catalog. It's more than just a catalog with photos. It's called the same title as the exhibition, Enchanting Imagination. But it also has essays in it that give the history of my father and his family, which is very interesting, as well as of Carvin French and the various designers and retail clients that Carvin French has worked with over the years. So I would recommend that people can buy that that book, Enchanting Imagination, on the website for the New York Historical Society on their shop or on Amazon, or it's available from a lot of booksellers. That's wonderful. But really, I hope most people will be able to see the exhibition. 
Thank you so much, Carol, for your time today. It was fascinating and really it's just really different from everything we've covered so far. We've covered different times in jewelry, but we never covered objet d'art and what objet d'art we have discussed today. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Jewelry Connoisseur podcast by Rappaport Jewelry Pro. This episode was hosted by Sonia Esther-Sultani and produced and edited by Vanina Picolk. You can find all our episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and read more about diamonds, colored gemstones, high jewelry designers, estate jewelry, and the latest jewelry trends on rappaport.com slash jewelry connoisseur. Please subscribe to get all our new episodes. And if you liked this one, leave us a review.